As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen I'm never quitting on my mission, I'ma roll with what I'm giving Got some ambition, this new edition, filling positions Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing Better watch the way you going, better go in the right direction In the moment you stressing, but you gon' be counting blessings And I know that for certain, keep on working, open curtains Haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version Whoa. I'm never gonna give up, give up Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah. Salutations, New Haven. Salutations, Connecticut. Salutations, the world. Uh, today, we have a, an educators talking show that's going to focus on this teacher shortage crisis. And we're, and we're also going to talk about states have surpluses in their budgets, and they're not doing anything to keep teachers. So I have guests today. I have uh, Cynthia McDermott, Christina Christian, Leslie Bouteau, and I'll ask themselves to introduce themselves uh, and share a little bit about what they're passionate about. And then we'll kick right into the show. And we'll start with Cynthia, then move to Christina, then to Leslie. So Christina, can you, I, I mean, Cynthia, sorry. Cynthia, can you tell us about who you are and what your passion is? Good morning from Los Angeles, where it still looks like winter out here. <laughs> it's been a crazy season. Uh, I am the past Dean of Education from one of the Antioch uh, campuses, but I've now started the Progressive Teacher Network, so I'm now the Executive Director. We're going to be launching that in July. Jesse, more details for you about that later. Uh, my passion is public education. My passion is making sure that young people are able to have a useful, healthy, healthy, healthy life. And we've got a long ways to go, don't we? Yes, we do. We do. We do. So, uh, uh, Dr. Christian, could you introduce yourself and tell us about your passion? Yes, I am Christina Christian. Uh, I think we have California's weather because it's beautiful here. Um, um, my, I'm an assistant professor at Central Connecticut State University, and uh, my passion is sort of twofold. Um, I love working with parents of children with special needs. Uh, that's a, a very unique group to work with. Uh, but right now, where where my real passion is, where there seems to be fire in my bones, is dealing with this issue of uh, what they call DSAP uh, teachers in Connecticut. That's provisionally licensed teachers. Um, and so I'm very passionate about helping them meet needs, urgent needs that would keep them in the profession. Because right now, I'm not sure we're doing that. No, we're, we're going to hit on that today. We're going to hit on what would it take to keep teachers in the profession? Because this isn't just going to be a moan and groan show. This is going to be that we have solutions. Right. <clears throat> and by the way, Connecticut, you have the money. So, uh, Leslie, can you introduce yourself and tell us about your passion? Yeah, good morning, everybody. My name is Leslie Blateau. I'm a high school social studies teacher and currently the president of the New Haven Federation of Teachers and about to be divisional vice president for pre-K-12 for AFT Connecticut. Um, I'm also a mom of a second grader in New Haven Public Schools, um, and she loves her school and loves her teacher. Um, and I am passionate about a lot of things, but I'll, I'll pick two to share this morning. Um, first, kind of to, to build off of what Dr. Christian was saying, I'm passionate about holding on to our teachers, and that's um, translates to really being passionate about teacher well-being. Um, and making sure that our teachers are okay, um, because we know that many of them are struggling and they're not okay. Um, the second thing I'm passionate about is the growing labor movement in this country um, and the growing um, teachers union movement in this country, where more and more teachers unions are realizing that when we bargain for the common good, when we bring to the negotiating table the things that we know will benefit our schools, our students, and our communities, the better off everybody is. So I'm passionate about sharing more about this idea of bargaining for the common good uh, with unions in Connecticut, because I think this is the direction we need to be going um, as we're facing budget crises and as we're facing, facing the ongoing threat of privatization. And, and when we talk today, we'll be talking Connecticut's an interesting place, $2 billion surplus, you know, uh, and they seem to not hear our cries and our pleas, but yeah. let's just 
do a couple, two little basic things right now. Educational research for the past hundred years has indicated the, uh, the one aspect of a child's education that consistently makes a difference is a teacher. Mm -hmm. So we've got that, that piece over there, the research indicates it more than any other research. There's nothing that comes correlationally close to that, that fact. And then we wanna talk about, you know, we have this teacher burnout and in the International Journal of Medicine and Environmental Health, not a teacher magazine, talked about how teachers have the highest stress and burnout rate in America yeah. right now. And maybe third, we should say that when we compare international salaries, mm -hmm. American teachers make, uh, there's a gap of over 23%. And the latest figure has shown that in America, teachers make 76 cents for every dollar made by other people in other professions with the same educational level. So that's, you know, that's a little, we could start a little there. So I'd like to, uh, Cynthia, could you give us a little view of what's going on in Los Angeles? Is everything rosy dory and- Oh, fabulous. Doing everything they can to keep us? Absolutely. Well, I do think that to follow up on what Leslie was talking about, the union effort in Los Angeles Unified School District, second largest district in the country, has been incredibly successful for teachers in this last year. It began with the strike with the staff who said, we're not getting paid well enough. And, you know, of course, LA Unified is so huge. And so the winning union organizing that happened for the staff then fell over into the teachers union. So that there was a strike by the staff, but the teachers did not go out on strike. They were close to, to do that. And the new superintendent and the school board decided to give the teachers in LA Unified a significant raise. So they're pretty happy with that. There's only one problem. There is still no support for a classroom teacher. And so as all the new strategies, practices and materials, et cetera, come down the path for teachers, there's no one there to help them. So Jesse, you're in the classroom and you're a teacher four or five, six years, and you suddenly have new materials. You have you know, more children of challenge in your classroom. And suddenly you say to your principal, but I need help. And your principal says, yeah. there's nothing I can do. And so we still have this huge deficit of support for teachers. And so when Leslie was talking about the need for teacher health, well-being, that is still something that is not addressed. And of course, now California has a huge deficit because of all the challenges that have happened down here, fires, et cetera, floods. Um, so the state is not in a position really to do much more. And the Department of Ed out here is still quite happy to um, increase the requirements for everything, you know, more tests or more programs for teachers or more without much voice from teachers to do that. The other thing that I think you touch on, Jesse, is that when you look at salaries across the country, depending on which community you live in, our teachers can get paid better in some communities than they can in others. California is a little different. We don't really have that same kind of taxation process here. All our dollars go into the state and come back out. So ADA for California kids is pretty much the same. But in a place like Los Angeles, where I live, you know, we have so many very, very expensive private schools. And those teachers who are not making as much as the public school teachers, but have a different kind of life because those schools provide a level of support that doesn't exist in the public schools. Uh, and then of course the charters make it even more crazy. There are now 280 plus charters in LA Unified mm -hmm. and everybody plays their own game with salaries, et cetera, and workload. And certainly Leslie, very few of them are unionized. A few of them are, but not very many of them. So we see this tremendous amount of disconnect across the kinds of schools, the kinds of neighborhoods, the level of preparation for teachers. In California, teachers receive their credential, their teaching credential as post-baccalaureate students. So they already have bachelor's degrees before they come into a program. So they're already pretty highly trained and educated as, as an individual before they move on to do that one year, that fifth year of credentialing program, which is pretty expensive in, in some places. The other thing to, to sort of 
connect with what Christina was saying. LA Unified, Los Angeles Unified, did something pretty smart a number of years ago, and it's been pretty successful. They have an internal intern program for their special ed student teachers. And I have a dear friend who is a, um, uh, they call it talent acquisition uh, for their human resources. And they have a pretty good uh, number of folks coming into special ed because they're getting a free credential. Uh, you know, it's kind of like you do the credential and you have to stay for two years. So they don't have a shortage of LA Unified of special ed. That's not a bad model for other universities to try and do the same thing, but the school district has done that. That's not to say they have enough science folks or math folks or um, uh, other areas, but, but they've done a very good job of doing that. And that's very smart. And they've been doing that for quite a number of years. So, but that unevenness, Jesse, that's the challenge that we also have. You know, why should one teacher in a school with rich parents who provide the everything they need have a different kind of life than a teacher who's working in a different school where there isn't that kind of support? And that's really unfair to our profession. Very unfair. And and I'll talk a little bit about my concern with uh, our Secretary of Education related to that. But. A perfect place to, 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 we'll go to Christina next, but let me just throw a number at people. We are down over 550,000 educator positions in our schools since COVID. And if we think about that, what that means is larger class sizes, less support services for our children. And right. this is directly impacting uh, the stress on our teachers. But but, and, and you gave us a point that special education, LA has a nice piece that where they'll get their credentials, they'll get their degree free if they work in the classroom. Christina, could you tell us what we do to DSAP special education teachers in Connecticut? Are we paying for their master's degrees and giving no. them stipends? No, I, the, the one thing that I have noticed um, in order to, to increase the number of teachers who are, or I should say, professionals to come into uh, special education, to, to sign that contract, to become a provisionally licensed teacher. Connecticut offers um, like housing um, benefits for housing, mortgage, paying for mortgage. They offer a few things that are nice, but not with education. So they don't pay for that. Um, <laughs> The, that's that's one issue. I think the, the biggest issue that I have noticed as I listened to Cynthia, um, I compared what she was saying about California and specifically the, the large school district that she has. And I look here at Connecticut. Connecticut has what, over 150, 60 school districts? It's about 160 they're, they're, something. They're so splintered. And each district never mind the schools in the district, have their very own model. Yeah. And so you're sitting in a class as, a, as an assistant professor who left North Carolina. In North Carolina, it's, it's definitely not splintered. We don't have, uh, we have had or have, they still have uh, maybe 100 school districts or 100 counties. And in those counties, you have the school districts. So it was a lot to not just, come here and learn how many school districts, but in each district, each school does something a little bit different. So when you're standing in front of these teachers, these, these provisionally licensed teachers, and you're trying to provide the support, the support varies from A to Z. And so it's almost impossible for even us to provide them with the support because their support varies significantly. And just, I'll give you one example. You know, one of the things that our teachers, um, our DSAP, um, and that's durational shortage area permit, basically provisionally licensed teachers. One of the things that I'm, I uh, appreciate so much about them is they're making a little noise regarding the failure of school districts to prepare them to teach social emotional learning. The demand is there. The support is not. Now, if you've been in the field as long as we have, you know that's kind of how this goes. <laughs> this is how it goes. You, you're told to do it, but you don't really get the support, um, especially since financially, 
the money for professional development has dwindled to virtually nothing. And so that puts the burden on universities to provide that and modules uh, where you log onto the internet and you go through a module uh, to learn whatever you need to learn. So I don't know how many provisionally licensed teachers have time to attend their courses, teach, God forbid they have children that they and, and a marriage that they have to go back to, and then fit in some modules, some extra stuff to meet the needs that the schools won't provide. So right now, with just in social emotional learning, teachers are stressed because they don't have the support. And the demand to provide social emotional learning to students is, is creating more stress for them. So they're actually more stressed because the demand is real. They're being watched. They're being told to provide something that they themselves don't have. They haven't been trained on it to do it and they need it. And so we're sort of at a point where we are losing the people who are coming in, they're coming in, they're signing the contract and they're saying, oh, wow, this is a lot. And they're leaving. And not before they suffer a little though. There's a lot of suffering in here, in the middle of this. And, um, you know, Jesse and I, we tried uh, this semester, we had a grant um, and we started that Hope Teacher Network. And the whole point of that network was to provide them with social emotional support. Um, I think we have a long way to go, but we learned a lot. Uh, we learned a lot in that process. So. Uh, we're things aren't that great on this side of the country either, Cynthia. <laughs> that's that's, but, okay. that's why we're coming to um, Leslie. Uh, well, you'll take us to this this picture of a state with a two hundred, I mean a two billion dollar surplus, and you were one of our speakers at a rally in Hartford for a moral budget. Could you tell us about this this union fight? To, I mean. We can help teachers, we can keep them. We should be, Julian Vasquez, the former Dean of the University of Kentucky and now provost at, at Michigan State, uh, always said we should be, stop worrying about the future and focus on how do we keep the current teachers in the classroom? Not only teachers, paraprofessionals, uh, aides, bus drivers, cafeteria workers. I mean, the shortage is massive. <clears throat> so Leslie, could you tell us a little bit about this moral budget and, and what teachers are going through? Absolutely. I just want to start, before I get into the moral budget, I want to start with teachers, the people I represent, the people that, that, that you're training to do the work. We want to do the job we've been hired to do. And in this day and age, it feels like we are doing the work of two, three people, right? And mm -hmm. even more so in our urban districts, because I call it the double whammy effect in urban districts. We know there's a national teacher shortage. So people are leaving the profession, right? So people are leaving New Haven and they're leaving the suburbs, which are better funded and better resourced um, than our urban districts in the state of Connecticut because of our regressive um, uh, school funding system. Um, um, so not only do teachers leave the suburbs and the urban districts, then more vacancies pop up in those suburban districts, creating more opportunities for folks from urban districts to transfer for better pay for better support, for better resources. So we're getting hit twice in our city schools uh, with this teacher shortage crisis. And as a result, we're then having to pick up to do more of the mental health support that Christina was talking about, social emotional learning. Then we're having to pick up for when our colleagues are out. We have an MOU with our district right now where many of our members are teaching six classes instead of five um, at the high school level. Um, and they're getting paid for it, yes. But look, it's not just about the pay. This is about the stress, the burnout, the working conditions. And I have some teachers saying, oh my God, I can't do the sixth class again next year. I, 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 it just, it zapped them, right? So we got to come back to teachers can and will thrive when we can do the job that we've been hired to do. Now to the moral budget piece. I think this has been going on for a long time, but this idea that the systems are broken outside of our schools, right? We know economic systems are broken. 
right? Racial capitalism is destroying families. Um, and they look to the schools to fix the problems Everything. on the outside. Everything. And it's absurd. It is absurd because all of us here know and, and agree that if we fixed the problems on the outside, you know, not that we believe test scores are the best way to measure things. We know that. But if we fix the problems on the outside, guess what? Engagement in school would go up. Attendance in school would go up. Performance in school would go up because we know that the schools reflect those problems on the outside. So that's why we're talking about a moral budget, not just to fully fund public schools in Connecticut, but also to make sure that working people across the state are paid a living wage, have access to benefits, healthcare, retirement, so that they can live lives of dignity and, and be respected in the process. So we know our brothers and sisters and siblings and our paraprofessional unions are underpaid and overworked. It's criminal what they're being paid. They have to work two, three jobs. The state of Connecticut could absolutely invest in our paraprofessionals to make sure that they were paid a living wage and had access to benefits. And guess what? As a result, Many of the parents who work in New Haven are parents and grandparents of New Haven public school students. So we pay those parents more, guess what happens? That's more money to those families, goes right back into our city, and ultimately those kids rise up because their families have been treated with respect. Same thing goes with our brothers and sisters in 1199 right now who are on strike for living wages and we stand with them. If the state choose to invest in working people we would see everything improve. But instead, we know the state right now is more interested in protecting the, you know, the income of our wealthiest Connecticut residents, those 12 billionaires who pay 5% on their income and working people pay 20%, right? On average. So those billionaires are protected. They've, they, they will lose nothing. They, they will be fine. And, and thousands and thousands of working people in this state continue to struggle. We've got working people working two, three jobs. We've got working people who are living out of their cars. I mean, this, this is why it's really important for New Haven Federation of Teachers, for AFT Connecticut. Because look, my members by and large, relative to our parents and to 1199 workers, we get paid, all right. Relative to that, right? Not relative to our, to our professional counterparts with similar degrees, but we have to stand with them anyway because again, when they are invested in, when they are respected, ultimately that's going to benefit everybody in this state, specifically the children who we educate and their families who we're trying to support. Um, so we can't tolerate anymore um, that they're trying to be fiscally responsible because lives are being destroyed, right? right. We can't right. tolerate anymore this rhetoric about sustainability um, and, and saving the rainy day fund for a rainy day. Not only do we have a $2 billion surplus, we have a multi-billion dollar rainy day fund. The rainy day fund is overflowing, it's pouring rain. Here's the metaphor. You um, have a house and you pay the mortgage on your house, right? And you um, have a huge hole in the roof, okay? It, the rain is pouring in. You just won the lottery. And you say, no, 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 I can't use my lottery money to fix the hole in the roof. I got to put the lottery money over here so I could pay my mortgage. No, no. Anybody with sense would say you'd use the lottery money to fix the hole in the roof. Connecticut is letting it pour rain through that hole in the roof right now. And we could do better. We're, we're getting closer. You know, I got to give a shout out to New Haven State Senator, Senator Looney. He stands with working people. Um, he recognizes the struggles. He celebrates his own life history of being a son who benefited from a dad's union membership. Um, he knows, and he is fighting tooth and nail um, to make sure that we come out of this session with that moral budget, Jesse. Um, and, you know, it's going to require more of us to yeah. call, especially people who aren't living in the cities, call your suburban state senator, call your suburban state rep and let them know that this is needed. Um, and, if, and we could raise taxes on the wealthiest among us. We could, and they're not going anywhere. There's research out of Yukon that puts to bed this millionaire migration myth. Millionaires aren't leaving if we raise taxes on them. Ned Lamont uses that talking point as somehow so he could scratch his friend's back. They're not going anywhere. There's a reason why people stay in Connecticut and they're staying. So let's put that to bed with the research from the Yukon professor and know that we can and should do better. I, I just met somebody from Washington State yesterday. Capital gains tax passed in Washington State 
to fund education. Massachusetts, they did a referendum. I know we can't do referendums in Connecticut, but here's what they did. They did a referendum. Every dollar you make over a million dollars, a penny of it goes to fund education and transportation. These are common sense strategies that could make sure we are actually investing in the, the people who make this state run. And that's teachers, paras, home health care workers, child care workers, cafeteria workers, the people who make it work. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we are proud uh, to be in solidarity with those folks. Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing where you take us next, Jesse. And we, we, we don't even need to raise taxes. They got two billion right now. <laughs> that's right. They're sitting on. Right. And two billion. I can. I, we've got 160 priority, 161 school districts, and we have 19 priority school districts. 19 priority. I can give them each a, a 20 million dollars. I can give them 50 million dollars and not have to raise a single penny in taxes. So I want to. I want to go to. I want to give this a human touch now, and I also want to raise that there's an elephant in the room. We are do we are not spending our money in our schools at the precise time that for the first time in our history, students of color are now majority of our schools. And that 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 says something to me, you know, and, and it's in there. But let's put a little human face. So Cynthia, could you tell us uh, maybe a human story about a teacher in LA that was struggled? You know, I've been reading this book called The Teachers, A Year Inside America's Education. Do you know this book, Jesse? Yes, I do. I'm reading it right now. Yeah. So this is from a woman named Alexandra Robbins, who is not a teacher. She's a journalist. I just want to read this one little section that she talked about. Uh, In the years before the COVID-19 pandemic, the education landscape had already darkened considerably for the nation's approximately 4 million K-12 teachers. And this is a quote, teachers feel more voiceless than ever. There's a lack of community support and understanding of how difficult it can be to serve children's educational, emotional, and psychological needs. A South Carolina elementary school librarian told me in March, 2020. She does such a good job in this book of talking about the real life stories of interviews with folks who are, they can't sustain what they're doing. And you were talking about Connecticut, which we normally think of as a pretty wealthy state, and certainly California, you know, the pride of the West Coast. Think about Texas, Florida, Mississippi. Think about what's happening for those teachers there who are worried about losing their jobs if they say the wrong thing. So one of the stories that I told Jesse was with one of my students who actually lost his life you know, because he became a drug user, ended up on the streets of LA in a a battle with the police and ended up being tasered on the streets of LA to death. Uh, He was one of our students. He was teaching in a tough charter school and um, there was no support for him. A gay man, um, you know, all the things against him all pulled together and lost his life. Uh, there's there's a teacher we lost for no good reason, except that he had started using drugs. And, and we can understand how teachers are going to do whatever they can do to survive, you know, and to be able to not feel like crap when they leave the school day and feel like they can't work with their kids and, and do what they're there. As you said, Leslie, we're, we, we want to do what we were trained to do. We want to do what we know is best. We want to do the best for our communities but we need to be done the best too as well. And, and one of the things, Jesse, I think that, that's so heartbreaking for me, you know, I'm old enough to, I just finished 52 years of teaching. So, you know, kind of how old I am. Um, I, I, miss, I miss the, um, you know, the collective national conversation that I think used to happen. You know, I think when we had Al Shanker writing every week in the New York Times about education, we had a public statement being made. We don't have that right now. We don't have that. And I was just, I hope you've all been part of that network for public education, that group that um, um, that Diane Ravitch started. But, and there's a conference coming up, by the way, if all of you don't know this in Washington, October 28th and 29th, which I think we all should go to. But Carol Burris is her executive director and she just listened to Cardona 
at a legislative meeting. And this is what she reported. Uh, he's a sincere and good man who cares about children in public education. However, his appearances before Congress to defend the Biden education budget have been serious disappointments. The Republican Party, not to get political here, is now clearly on a mission to destroy public education. He, meaning Cardona, must recognize the threat and lead with courage and facts. Unfortunately, he seems more interested in deflecting arguments and placating voucher proponents than facing the assault on public education head on. And I think Leslie's concern about making sure we're in touch with our legislators and who are the people that we've elected across the country who are supporting to put pressure on public education in a different way than the pressure is right now. And I think that story of my student who lost his life because of the horrors that are occurring for our public education teachers, you know, it is, is more than tragic. I mean, that, that's not even the word for it. It's more than tragic. And Leslie, I know that there are teachers in LA who are sleeping in their cars. You know, they're just, you know, single moms with a couple kids, you know, who are barely making it, you know, particularly in the charter schools because they pay much less well than the public schools. And they're not unionized, so they're doing, I, I, I don't know all the details because they're all different. Every charter school is different from every other charter school. But, you know, we have this emotional crisis for how we're treating our teachers. Overworked and exploited, as Leslie just said in the so. Let me, I'd like to put something in perspective, Jesse, because I, I'm, I'm not sure listeners fully understand when they hear each one of us talk about um, the pressures that teachers are under. Uh, you opened up with one statistic that said that we are the most stressed professionals in the nation. And a study was put out there that measured the stress levels of emergency room doctors. Absolutely. And nurses. And nurses in the, the, the ER. Right. They, we are more stressed than they are. That's one, again, just putting in perspective, a body of research that came out uh, a few years ago by, I believe it's called the Program um, of International Student Assessments, PISA. PISA um, put out some information that basically helped the world understand that one of the issues that America's public schools has that other countries don't have, we make social problems, the social issues that exist in our society, we put that into the schools and require teachers to deal with social issues. Whereas um, in other countries, they're saying, no, your job is to teach, that's it. So you are the math teacher, the science teacher, the, the reading teacher. We, you, we're not going to ask you to deal with the social emotional issues of the students. That's the parent's job. And so in other countries, they're saying, look, we know the job of the teacher and we know the job of the family. And we're going to keep the two separate. In America's schools, the job of the family, but then it go, kind of goes into what Leslie's saying, the family's overwhelmed and strapped because financially they're barely making it if they're making it. So you have families who can't meet their children's social emotional needs, their physical needs, their medical needs, because they're not making enough money, which then puts the burden they put it in legislation, they give it to the schools, somehow they make sure that there's this new initiative that you're giving now, you call it an initiative, you put it in the schools. And so now teachers are given the responsibility of making sure that students, or not just teachers, but um, cafeteria staff, um, school administration, bus drivers, we're all giving, we're all receiving responsibilities that families normally had, traditionally had, that we now have, that social services had, but we now have, that medical doctors had, that we now have. And so we are dealing with the physical child, their, their medical needs, their social emotional needs, their um, special needs identified by, through IDEA. So we're doing all of these things. Okay, so in, in 
to, to kind of put a button on this. When you go to a banker, if you don't have money in the bank, you leave. <laughs> but you can't go to the banker and say to the banker, okay, I have $5 in the bank now. I'm going to need you to um, help me with, provide me with more money. I'm going to need you to help me balance my budget. I'm going to need you to help me. And so we tell them all of the issues we have in our home that this $5 is not going to address. And so you tell the teller, teller, I need you to do more with this $5 to help me meet all the needs I have at home. And then you begin to lay those out. That's what we in the classroom have become. We've become that person with $5 uh, because of, there's a $2, million, $2 billion that we can't get access to, but we have limited funds and we're just being told to do more with that, um, taking on more responsibilities. And so for anybody who looks and says, like in Los Angeles, you should be happy. You just got a significant raise. Yeah, but I don't have support. With that raise, the responsibilities are still overwhelming. And so that raise, thank you, because it helps me at home to meet my financial needs, but I'm still exhausted. I'm still overwhelmed. I'm still overworked. I still, and, and so for every new initiative that comes through, I have to do that with less training, less support. And so I think we're the only profession, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we're the only profession where we go to school to learn to become a math teacher, but we also have to provide lessons in that traditionally were for counselors in the school, but you got rid of them. So we don't have them anymore. So now me as the math teacher, I learned to teach math, but I have to now provide emotional support that I wasn't trained to provide. I'm a PE teacher and you want me to learn, you know, medical issues that a student may have. And so these are the things that make us so not just different, but overwhelmed because we are a profession who for some reason we're asked to do everybody else's profession. Does that make sense? I'm not sure if I said that correctly. No, no. Absolutely. Can I jump yeah. in on the medical piece, Jesse? Yes, go ahead. So I love that Christina referenced the, the fact that, that, again, schools are being asked to solve all the problems outside of school. And here's a concrete example of something that we're asking for in, in our equity agenda in our moral budget. So right now, uh, the state of Connecticut provides health insurance for undocumented immigrants uh, who are under the age of 12, Okay. And that means if you're 13 or 14 or 15, you came here when you were five with your parents and, and you're undocumented, you don't qualify uh, for state insurance, okay? So we're just drawing a line based on uh, an arbitrary age about who should get health care. So that means that my members who are teaching in our middle schools and high schools have students who can't access regular health care. And the state, I think, has agreed to maybe increase it this year up to 16, which means we still are going to have children 17 years old and let's let's be real 18 19 20 year olds are children okay children who still can't access medical care in the richest state in the country in the richest country in the world um it's criminal um and and when it comes i don't have the exact numbers but this is relative to our state budget this is pennies we should be providing health insurance for undocumented folks up to age 26 it and it, it, it would not put a strain on our state budget. It's, and here's another example of ways that unions can center the needs of our communities um, and, and continue to push kind of this equity agenda, not just at the state capital with the budget, but in, in our day-to-day -day dealings with the district. So right now there's a, a bill, um, and I think, it, I think it's moving along, right, in the, in the General Assembly, and it's a, a bill of rights for English language learners and their families. Absolutely. We agree 100%, right? Ap children and families who speak languages other than English, absolutely, their rights should be upheld. They should be given resources in, in the languages of their, of their uh, home language. They should be given supports. There should be access to translation services. We believe in all this. In fact, New Haven Federation of Teachers, when we negotiated our contract last, last fall, we brought some of these very things to the negotiating table. 
And we said, we wanna make sure our English language learners have access to materials in both English and their home language. And the district said, oh, we can't do that. That's not a topic of mandatory bargaining. Sorry, we can't do that, All right? So we brought that to the negotiating table. The district said, no. Now the state wants to pass this feel good bill of rights. And the reason why I say feel good, it's because there's not any money with it. So guess who's going to have to do the work? Our bilingual staff, majority black and brown folks. So now we're, they're gonna have to do more work. The state's gonna pass a feel good bill that absolutely is a good bill, but we need money attached to it. And without it, our black and brown bilingual folks are gonna have to do more work, burn them out faster, send them out the door, and then we're gonna have more shortages in bilingual when now more than ever, we need more folks. Cause it's not just Spanish folks. My daughter's got classmates um, you know, who, who's, whose peers, second grade peers, are doing the translating from English to Pashto because um, these young folks coming over from Afghanistan have not yet learned English. I mean, they learn it quick because they're extraordinarily uh, beautiful and brilliant human beings, but we need the resources, not just the feel good bills. You know, Jesse, can I jump in? Just yeah, go ahead. So um, in the last couple of years, I've been working with this very interesting young man named Adam Fletcher. And Adam's work since he was a teenager himself has been about youth rights. And I'm proud to say that we have a new book coming out very soon called Democracy Deficit Disorder. And the goal of this work that he has done is about reminding us all that we don't give a you know what about children, that we just ignore them. We, they don't have rights, even though they have international rights. You know, the United States is the only country that has not validated the national or the international rights for children out of the UNC. So, you know, I think as I've thought more about this and this concept of adultism, you know, the, the folks that we, we look at kids as future adults, but we don't see them as legitimate members of society, legitimate citizens, legitimate, you know, people as they are. Um, we, we don't talk about this. We, we don't talk about the fact that children don't have rights. And so Leslie, as you're talking about the Bill of Rights, there are huge numbers of documents about the rights for children, but we don't provide them. First of all, we don't even tell them and we don't support any of those kinds of things. And so it's no wonder that we don't, the aspects of society that protect and take care of our children, they don't count. And, and to me, that's become a much larger concern and conversation for me in the work that I'm doing. And there is an, an international effort and an effort right now um, to now have young people get the vote. That in fact, if we had people at 10 or 11 having the opportunity to vote, it sounds really radical. But what difference that would make if young people had a chance to be able to be at the voting booth with all of us to say, no, 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 we're not gonna support this. No, 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 we're not gonna vote you back into office unless you're gonna give us what we need. And it's a movement that's happening. It's not very loud, but Jesse, as you're talking about solutions, giving young people the power they can use would in fact create change. And it would give young people the opportunity to say, you know, I'm gonna sit on the negotiating board for the school district. I'm gonna be here as a 10 or 11 or 12 year old representing other young people to be able to say, listen to us and what's happening to us. Instead of us, oh, whining, oh, those poor kids, oh, they need this, oh, it's so, well, why not hear it from the children? Why not represent them in this work? Where's the union for young people? And I think this, this national effort that's happening, which, you know, many people are very frightened of this idea, giving 10, 11, 12 year olds the right to vote. Really? It, it's a, it's an interesting concept. And I've been looking at it very seriously. A gentleman with the last name of Wall, I forget his first name. He's actually been one of the leading proponents of this in the United States. So if we look at, we're, we're going to move to solutions, but before that, um, uh, uh, Connecticut Voices did a survey of why our teachers are leaving. Lack of support from administrators, right. uh, large caseloads for special education, literacy, social workers, uh, second language acquisition, student behavior, and no supports. 
right. for helping with that student behavior. Uh, the accountability requirements, teachers are spending hours of every day entering data up online and, and nothing's happening with that data over there. The salary and benefits I mentioned before in Connecticut, the difference between how much you get paid as a teacher from Bridgeport and Farmington is ten to $15,000 every single year. That's every year. And I, I, and you know, I'm at the university, so I'm sadly, I have to tell my teachers, you can't go to Bridgeport because that equals 750 to a million dollars less money in your family's pocket. That's your house, that's your car, that's your vacation, that's your health care. And, and this is some of the stuff we have. So one thing, yes, I'm going to say, if you want to keep teachers in the classroom, start paying them more. Leslie, can you help us and tell us what could keep teachers in the classroom right now? What would make them say, I'll stick around for another five years? Um, absolutely. Teachers will stay if our voices are actually heard and not just the nod, the check, and the moving on. Let's talk about special ed. Um, let's talk about the fact that Connecticut State Department of Ed thought it'd be a good idea to shift special ed programs, um, you know, uh, the, the you know, IEP information collecting program to an online, the CT SEDS program. It has been a disaster from the start. Yes. Teachers are getting jammed up on tech problems. Systems are crashing. It's not user-friendly. So now to your point, Jesse, we're asking teachers to put more time and energy into a computer program when they have young people sitting in their care who are not getting their required hours, who are not getting their needs met. Um, so if we had to listen to teachers in the first place, when we shared our collective concerns about the problems of the CT SEDS as one example, um, maybe we wouldn't be down this where I've had, I've had special ed teachers say to me, I don't think I can stay in the profession when it's these, these, these constraints. And the American Federation of Teachers did a, a report and we released uh, what strategies local, state, and federal government should be using to keep our teachers. And one of them is let's do a paperwork audit and let's figure right. out how much of this paperwork is unnecessary and free us up to do the work we wanna do, which is get to know our students, build relationships with students, design lessons and units that meet their needs. That's what, give them the feedback they need. Those are the four things we want to do. And we need the time, the tools, and the training to do it. We don't need, we call it the, the one more thing factor. We don't need the one more thing. Every year, we're going to come back in August again, and we're going to find out from our supervisors that that one more thing that they want us to do, and they never take one other thing off our plate. So please listen to us when we say that we want to do our jobs, we want to teach, but when you keep adding one more thing, People say enough is enough. I've had teachers say to me, you could add up one in front of my salary and I'm still going. Yeah. That what Leslie just said um, is, is what I've heard teachers say throughout the semester. And that's that one more thing. I, um, looking at solutions, I conducted some research and I've been doing research for years, trying to find a way to help parents and teachers sort of balance this job of um, this common good of, of raising up a child, developing them and preparing them for adulthood because we, we're in this thing together. We both benefit from a child who is raised um, where we work together to do things. One of the, the, the strategies that I use to sort of help teachers understand that you can meet a child's academic and social emotional needs and behavioral needs and character development needs using one thing. And Jesse and I kind of, you know, our hope for teachers um, network is sort of a um, attachment to that. Basically, I um, spent the last probably 15 to 20 years conducting research on how you can use a reading method, a simple reading method to select a book and address initiatives like um, the SEL, the, I'm using all these um, initiatives with the, the, the acronyms, but SEL, MTSS, PBIS, I know it's a lot of uh, jargon, but 
There's a simple way that you can pick up a book. A teacher can pick up a book and take the moral portion of that book, ask the students the right questions about the moral lesson of the book, and you can address social emotional learning just by doing that. And research shows the research that I've conducted on this, and it's similar, it's like bibliotherapy. It, that was, um, Cynthia, that was the tough part when I was uh, get, earning my uh, doctorate because it's a combination of bibliotherapy and social stories, which is for children identified as having autism. So I took the concept of bibliotherapy and I took the uh, mechanics of social stories and I combined them to specifically show how you can take um, the moral portion of a story, do the bibliotherapy, but then also make sure you take aspects of so research from social stories and do the mechanics of making sure that students walk away understanding how to problem solve, how to make decisions based on this moral lesson you just provided. So it was really a combination of those. Now I have to admit when I was earning my doctorate and I uh, was I was so excited about bibliotherapy, but when my um, team said, yeah, no, that's not quite it. And I had to go back to the drawing board and sort of create, I had, so I had to really create this theory that you can combine those two. And teachers, every, every reading teacher, every social studies teacher, we all read stories, informative, fictional, we have poetry, you can use a poem to teach oh, them. Like, like the ones we're banning across the country? Right, right. And, and that's the that's the other thing. We won't even go there. We don't have time for that. But the very thing, like the poem Invictus, the poem Mask. Right now, the, the poem by Paul Lawrence Dunbar about wearing a mask, how many of us wouldn't understand what it means to wear a mask right now, to fake being happy? But a teacher can go into the classroom and use that same poem. And rather than just focusing on the mechanics of poetry, and understanding the, the um, literacy elements of the poem, why not also bring that message through to help students know that we all wear a mask. We all show up every day with a smile, even if we don't feel like it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Jesse, I, I, think... want to, I want us to do, I want us to do spe some specific recommendations. For right. me right now in Connecticut, our DSAP teachers should not have to pay for their master's degree. There's enough money. If they're helping us with a durational shortage in a crisis, then they should not have to pay for that. They're leaving with in debt of twenty to thirty-five thousand dollars, and plus many of them had twenty to thirty thousand dollars as undergraduate. So, right. legislators, Governor Lamont, if you really wanted to do something to help special education teachers, bilingual teachers all teachers who are working as DSAP teachers pay for them. So let's so, share one thing because we're coming down to our last couple of minutes. Right. So in California, after someone gets their initial credential, after they've had a bachelor's degree, then they go to a fifth year program, they get their initial credential, whether it's for multiple subject or single subject or special needs. Um, they created, we created years ago, a program of support for beginning teachers. And now it's called induction. And the goal, which is not always working, but I think it's a very valuable idea, is that once you're in the classroom, so Leslie's a new teacher and I'm a more senior teacher, and in your induction program where you're supposed to be working with a network of kinds of whatevers, that I, as your induction mentor, am available to you for support. The challenge of why this is not working so well is that I'm not getting paid. As the induction person support for Leslie, I'm not getting very much for that. And so if the states would provide support for teachers in that first critical year of trying to figure out how to get your feet underneath you and what you do with all the moving parts of the classroom, that we would have a way. I mean, we've got the model in California. I don't know what's happening in other states. We just haven't funded it. 
the, as, well, as well as we can fund it. And sometimes you don't want that mentor that's been chosen by the principal, who's hoping by, they, by choosing that mentor that they'll get better. You know, that's like, let, let's not pick a strong person, they'll get better. But that concept, Jesse, makes a lot of sense that you have a sister or brother in the building that you can go to not, and take your mask off, as Christine is talking about, and saying, I need help, please help me. And that person can come into the classroom, do a demonstration lesson, that you involve this collective of skill where everybody's helping everybody else instead of hiding in our classrooms and you know, biting our fingernails about how we're gonna get through the day. But that not that idea is perfect. And I don't know where it's working well in the country. I haven't done any real research on that, but I know I ran the induction program at my university and it made a huge difference, a huge difference. Because somebody had somebody to work with. I think so need, I'm sorry, Jeff. I really think we need teachers to keep to to say, I need help. This quiet suffering is not helping us. I, and to Cynthia's point, she had this one teacher who was suffering alone and, and probably suffering in silence. What we need, teachers, we need you to be honest about what you're going through. We need is teachers who are suffering. We need you to be vocal about this because as long as you're suffering in silence, you're going to continue to suffer in silence because no one, the help is just not going to come. Um, and so that's my recommendation. Teachers, please, please speak up, speak up. And support your union. Yes. Read, read your contract, get read to know your contract. contract, get involved. We are welcoming. That's right. That's uh, we've right. got to stick together on this. Right. Um, absolutely. And, the and contract is there to protect. For Right, and find that network for public education because we need to be networked. We need to be talking with each other. Yeah, there, there is a vision in this country for public education as it is the foundation of our democracy. Absolutely. We can't give up on that vision. We have to stand firm. Charter schools are not public schools as much as some of our elected officials like to say. We need fully funded, equitable public schools in Connecticut and across the country. That vision is still there and we can still get there. All right, we're, we're coming to our, our time constraints, but it's easy, to, easy for us to see that our policymakers and our legislators have really implemented policies that would chase teachers away. Yes. School choice without equity yep. uh, makes no sense to me. It's a myth uh, of choice. It's not real you know, choice. More mandates mm -hmm. uh, makes no sense to me. Too many uh, tests. Yeah, yeah more, more, more high stakes testing. We haven't even talked about two billion dollars a year spent on those high stakes testing that that don't even come back into the next fall and have no educational value whatsoever. Uh, it's 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 a criminal. It's criminal to say Horace Mann, who often is called the father of public education in America, said money for schools now or prisons later. Right. We are at the point now that we are we are looking forward to a future of more prisons. And that's why academics now openly talk about our public school system as a school to prison pipeline. pipeline right? I mean, and, and this is unbelievable. And, and to end it, uh, I'm thinking that it's not only our special education teachers. I was at a rally with Leslie last year and paraprofessionals in, in New Haven were talking about they don't have social security. They don't have pension. Right. They don't have health care. You know, it's 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 everybody in the school needs to have health care. Everybody in the school needs to have access to some kind of pension. Everybody in the school needs to have a living wage, and and that's the battle we have. And I hope Leslie that that Connecticut could become like other states where we don't have 161 different individual unions. We have right. one. AFT union, one CEA go. union, Let's sort go. of like Massachusetts, MEA, that gives us power and stuff. So I'm hoping that I want to thank everyone for being on the show today. Thank I you, wanna, Jesse. I want to applaud our teachers who are in our classrooms, hanging around, uh, working hard every day. I want to remind people that American teachers work 15 to 20 hours without pay every single week over there. And those summers that you think they're on vacation, 
those are unpaid leaves, just to let you know. So teachers are underpaid, under, under resourced, uh, left under supported. And are we really wondering why our children are in crisis right now? I'm not, I know the answer. So I'm ready to log off. I think she's gonna start on, thank you, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Take care, everybody. Absolutely, be well.